0: Hello and welcome to She Started It with Angelica Malin, the podcast that celebrates incredible, inspiring women who are at the top of their industries, from food to fashion, law to politics. This is a podcast about celebrating female entrepreneurship, power and potential, exploring what it really takes to be a trailblazer in today's world. I'm your host, entrepreneur and journalist Angelica Malin, and every week I'll be asking a new guest for their three career turning points and answering the question we've all wondered at some point, how did she start it? She Starts It with Angelica Mainon is kindly sponsored by Bloom & Wild. If you're like me and you love having fresh flowers around you while you're relaxing at home, but I hate having to carry them around with me all day, and who's ever home long enough to arrange a delivery anymore, Bloom & Wild have got us covered. They're the UK's top-rated online florist, and they deliver right to your letterbox. So you can get fresh buds, ready to flower, they can last up to 10 days, and you don't even have to worry about being home for the delivery. They'll give you £10 off your first order with the code SHE. Straight and simple, S-H-E. They offer free next-day delivery up to 10pm. They ship across the UK, France and Germany. So they've got you covered. So head on over to blueandwild.com. Use the offer code SHE so they know I sent you and treat yourself. Susie Malin studied at the Slade School of Art before embarking on your career as a portrait painter. Her many well-known and eminent sitters include Zandra Rhodes, Elton John, Peter Sellers, Lord Hume and Queen Anne-Marie of Greece. Susie has nine portraits in the National Portrait Gallery, but her best work is obviously making me.
1: Because <coughs> you are
0: my mum. Exactly. I've actually wanted to do a podcast with you for a very long time, but you've never quite fitted in any of my briefs. But today you do, because you're amazing and inspirational, and we can talk to you.
1: Oh, bless you. Thank you, darling.
0: So, mummy, what age did you know that you wanted to be a artist, a portrait painter?
1: Well, I knew it wasn't specifically a portrait painter, but I knew I had to create. I was about four years old and I used to pinch all the bars of soap in our family and they were blue they were called cuticure in those days and I used to sculpt heads on them so whenever my mother went to the bathroom there was there would be a, a sort of sculpted head instead of a bar of soap she actually kept them um, so we were always short of soap in our family and we were a very <laughs> dirty family I whipped them all as soon as they came out that was another one. And how me. old were you then? Four.
0: You were four years old.
1: Mm. I always, I, I was always knew that I wanted to be a painter. There was never any question for me. It was like that was what I was here to do and I just had to get on with it.
0: It's, it's so nice, I think, in an age where... We have so many options for what career path we could take, and it, people are so overwhelmed. My guest earlier today, I was talking to, and she was saying that she wanted to do this, and then she wanted to do that, and she studied something that didn't relate to what she then wanted to go into, and she was trained for the wrong things. It's super overwhelming. Yeah. It's so nice that you just kind of knew. Well, I knew. In fact, when I was at school,
1: I got rather frustrated because the teachers would be talking, and I was drawing their faces on my knee with my forefinger. It was like an invisible pencil, and when they moved I thought, Oh my God! I wish they would stay still. I had to get on with what I had to do. The fact of the matter is, is that I wasn't listening to them, but my face was on them. And whenever they turned to me to ask me a question, I could never reply. I was. I
0: got a million much miles more serious away. things to do. So I ask all my guests in advance of the show to tell me three career points that they feel like were very important in their journeys. Can you tell me a little bit about the first one that you chose?
1: I was at school, and I wasn't concentrating. Um, I woke up a little bit later on, but until a certain age, I think it was 10 or maybe later, um, I was busy drawing on my on my knee. And all my school reports were dreadful. They said, <laughs> should do better, hopeless, blah, blah. There was nothing that they, anybody could think to say nice, because this was very frustrating for them. I looked as I was concentrating, but nothing seemed to be going in. Mm. And I got a school report which said, lousy, lousy, lousy. But the headmistress wanted to say just something nice so that my mother wouldn't want to throw herself (laughs) off the roof. (laughs) And she said, she has very nice table manners. So my mother got the report. She tore it up and she threw it into the fire. In those days, we had a very old-fashioned fire grate. And she said, well, if you've got very nice table manners we'd better go out to lunch. She took me out to lunch. We went, um, I was brought up in Leeds. We went to Leeds to the milk bar, which was great, which was served cheese, cheese on toast. And on the way back, we stopped at an art shop. And my mother bought me some pure red, which in those days was very expensive. It was six pounds. And in those days, that was like a week's mm. housekeeping. And um, some sable brushes. I was very young. I was so touched. I was so, The report was never mentioned. But as soon as I got in, of course, I started to paint. And it, 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 it was so nice to have such a wonderful mother. Mm. And I think that my great fortune in life has been to be born into the right family mm. and to have the people around whom I love and who love me. And I think my fortune was my mother and the way she was behind me.
0: It's amazing how crystal clear that memory is to you as well, that that small axe you remember so well.
1: Yes, I'm, I couldn't have been, I think I was five or six. Really? Yeah. Yeah.
0: But you were a dance at school. <laughs>
1: well, I, I, I woke up later on. I was clever later on. Mm. But at this stage, I just... You were preoccupied with I painting. I was. They were getting on
0: my nerves. Would they shut up
1: and keep still so I could draw them properly?
0: <laughs> <laughs> and then you went to the Slade. Tell me, what was the Slade like? Was it easy to get in? How did that happen? It was a dream come true. It was the happiest
1: time of my life. I adored every minute of it. On the first day, I said to Sally the cleaner, Sally, how can a human being be so happy? Mm. I felt that to have to paint every day and to have to be with people who wanted to paint, who wanted to go to exhibitions, who wanted to talk about painting was the greatest privilege. And also, as I was walking on towards the Slade, I... I was on the path, walking on the path. I thought, Stanley Spencer walked on this mm. earth, on this path. And I was thinking of all the artists that I admired who trod this way before. It was so exciting. As a matter of fact, my father didn't want me to paint. And I had had the flu. And I, had, I was supposed to go down to London to put my folio into the Slade. And he let me oversleep. And my mother rang my brother up and said, Howard, leave the office go into town, go and get a ticket, come home, because in those days you couldn't buy them at the station, get Susie's folio and go down to the Slade and come back all in a day. Mm. And Howard went down and did that. When he got down there, he said, "Mummy, there's thousands of them. She's not going to get in. Mummy mm. said, never mind, so long as we did it. You know, she didn't want me to miss the opportunity. And thankfully, I did get in. And it it's been a wonderful life. I think to have the joy of knowing what you want to do and to be totally fulfilled in doing it is really a gift because I can honestly say when I've been working and I've when I've had to work very hard for deadlines or commissions and things like that, it's been hard and I've had to start early, work late, but I've never done a day's
0: work in my life. Because mm, I enjoy it so much. Mm. There must have been some oddballs at the Slade though. <laughs> oh, we were wrong. We were all, every single Did one of know. us. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> and then tell me about your second career turning point. So, talk to me about Iran. Well, it was just
1: before I left the Slade having done my postgraduate. When I was at the Slade, I did a postgraduate and I was quite fortunate in that I painted a lot of wonderful people. That's I painted Peter Sellers when I was actually at the Slade. On the day I left the Slade, I had a phone call and it was from a girl's father who I'd met and he said, hello, Iran speaking Iran, I would like you to come and paint my family. Um, where would you like to break your journey? And the following day, I wasn't quite sure if I hadn't slept it, uh, um, you Dreamed know, it. dreamt it. And two days later, I was on the plane to Iran, and they, the girl in question, she was engaged to the jeweler for the Shah, so I ended up, by accident, painting the Shah's family. And this was a very good experience, because if you go straight from the Slade, and you're totally new to, to, to the professional world of portrait painting, it could be quite awe inspiring. Mm. But I, my first commission was in the, Madame Diba's palace, which was on the outskirts of Iran. And I arrived there, there was thick snow, and outside there were sort of guards guarding the palace. And I was standing in the snow while a man who'd brought me the car. And all of a sudden, the guards fell to the ground with their faces almost in the snow. And I thought, oh my God, I've <laughs> got to do something. So I bent down. <laughs> And my paint box opened. All my paints fell into the snow. My hair blew off. And this woman, the, the Shah's mother-in-law, looked at me as if to say, oh, poor idiot. Anyway, <laughs> they brought me hundreds of dresses and asked me which one I wanted. When when I actually went into the palace, it, it was quite daunting because there's a, a red carpet in the snow. And as soon as you tread on it. it. It plays the royal anthem. So I didn't know where the noise was coming from. I just went, ah! <laughs> <laughs> I stepped on it, went into the uh, this main room, and I didn't have an easel, of course. I had my canvas. I had some charcoal. I had somebody who was a human easel who was holding my canvas for me, right? And Behind me was a huge picture window, and there was a soldier marching up and down with a gun. In the room, there was an interpreter, a butler who was standing was very erect with a gold, solid gold tray, with a gold drink, which was the royal drink, which was pomegranate juice in a solid gold cup. And there was the lady's maid at the side. So there was all, all these people, but there was absolutely no noise whatsoever. Except the tick tock, tick tock of the clock, and as I was working, I was so nervous because this was my first experience that I, uh, the charcoal lines that I was making because I was sweating, the, the, I was obscuring the lines that I'd already drawn. <laughs> it was quite daunting. Afterwards, the Madame Deba, uh, she was Farah Deba's mother. She came to me and she said, oh, throughout, she kept on saying, make me slim, make me slim through the interpreter. I said, yeah, yeah, well, afterwards she came to me and she said, I want to give the girl a little present. So she went and she got some beluga caviar and she gave me tins and tins of beluga caviar, quite fat tins. And um, I thanked her and I took them back to England. What was very interesting, which was a very a, a wonderful experience for me, was that I kept the caviar because I wanted to share it with friends. Mm. So I decided I was going to have a party, but I couldn't have the party immediately because I had to get the portrait done and off back to Iran. So, but once, once I'd done it, I invited a whole load of people around. My living room was flooded with pals, and I said, Come on, I'm bringing it in. And I opened the caviar and I kept it too long. It oh, was all no. moldy. Yeah. Oh, no. So then I went into the room and I said, Anybody
0: fancy Indian? (laughs) (laughs) That was you, Dad. Yeah, I never wait. can't believe they had a human easel. Human easel, yeah. His arms must have started shaking. Well, he would sort of... yeah well a strong strong man quite
1: strong yeah (laughs) but needs must
0: but I suppose that whole experience was quite a baptism of fire because once you had done that as your first proper commission I suppose nothing was really quite so scary nothing was quite
1: so scary and afterwards when I'd finished the painting I had to go and meet the Iranian ambassador here in London and talk to him and at the back of the room there was somebody else now I'm not sure who he was but I know the following day he jumped out of the window he committed suicide (laughs) so the whole experience was sort of it was it was surreal yeah a very surreal
0: surreal experience but have quite a lot of your experiences as a portrait painter been quite surreal because I suppose you're stepping into people's lives for a day or two and it can lead to that
1: spot on I always tried to, in order to get the best out of my sitters so they would feel relaxed with me and I could then get the best from them, I tried to camouflage myself in terms of clothes and to be as close looking to them so they'd feel relaxed with me. And I remember um, that my very first big commission here in England after the Shah was, I went, I was commissioned to paint the Dean of Christchurch mm. in Oxford. And of course, this was a huge one because my painting was going to hang next to Graham Sutherland's, and there was going to be a huge unveiling, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I had—I was going down to um, uh, Christchurch, Oxford. And I thought, well, I better look like an academic. So I put on a tweed jacket, a little viola check blouse, a little paisley skirt. And I had a carpet bag, a tapestry carpet bag. I had my hair up and I really did look very blue stocking. And I thought, just the final touch, I think I put I'll put on some perfume, some violet perfume. And I did. And it made me sick and by the time I got
0: <laughs> so sick of the centre, of it. Yeah. I, I, really I think you took it a little too far. I did. But things didn't go quite to plan with that commission, did they?
1: Well, I was very anxious to make it right because I was very young then. Uh, I was 23.
2: A new year is full of surprises, but one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. For a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code program.
1: And it was a big one. Oh, maybe I was 22. Anyway... I'd started to paint him, and I always would take color charts. So I'd do a lot of drawings first, and then afterwards I'd do color charts so that whilst I was away, because I work in tempera, which is very fine, it takes a long time. So I would isolate the colors on the face and actually describe to myself and put a little arrow of the colors I I'd going to be using, like Naples yellow and cadmium in this place, etc. But I painted him, and the next time I, I spoke to him, he'd had an operation, and I went to see him, and he he was blue. He had blue lips, and the whole face was bluish. So I changed the colour to for the present colour, and thinking that was the right colour, and that the previous one hadn't been. And then he went yellow. So it was a very difficult commission because his colour kept on changing. But the worst thing was, I asked him why he got up at four o'clock every morning to work. And he had behind him as a background hundreds of books, and he'd written them all, Conscience Mm. in the Early Christian Church, whatever, you know, uh, on that subject. And I said, why do you get up at four o'clock in the morning every day? And he said, because the pain of not knowing is worse than the pain of knowing, which I thought was pretty good. I painted all those books, took the painting when it was finished to Christchurch, to the great hall where it was going to hang, put it next to the Graham Sutherland. And I found that the colours in it, I'd knocked out the colours in the next painting because I'd made them too red. Mm. So I'd sort of absorbed too much light as it were Mm. so I took the painting back and then I was the one that had to get up every morning at four o'clock to repaint the books so that they weren't quite so bright and so but that was it was very good having very difficult problems very early on. Wait
0: wait, why was he going yellow? I think it was it was something to do with his operation. So he'd sort of become a bit
1: jaundiced. He'd become jaundiced. First of all he was too pale Then he was, I think his heart might have been affected, and then he was jaundiced. But in the end, we kind of got it right. You got there. Yes. And the marvellous thing about with all of my sitters is the relationship you form Mm. when you're painting Mm. them. Because you are so interested in every single little detail of them, how they arrived at being who they are, and what is it that makes them unique. So you're fascinated by them. And I think that they are happy to open up because they want you to get the best. Mm. So it's a two-way relationship and you get a sort of a very unusual because they become, in many instances, almost like family. Mm. And the relationship lasts beyond the portrait. Yeah. And so they're always friends and sometimes friends with the whole family because I rely on the other people in the family to help me. For instance, if I get a portrait and it's, and it's a commission... Somebody is going to want that commission to hang in a great hall or wherever they have an idea of who that person is. I meet somebody brand new, mm. and why is my perception of them, which could be completely different, going to be more important than theirs and they 've known them a long time mm. so in actual fact it, it isn 't the painting that 's hard it 's the perception. so I always ask the people that are commissioning me and the family and the wife who this man is. So I do lots of drawings. The essence.
0: Yeah. Because I think there is an element of vulnerability about having yourself painted where it's quite revealing and you have to be quite open and you may not like what you see. Is that why you primarily paint men?
1: I paint men because I'm a real painter and as much I don't want to have to flatter. Mm. I like to paint and paint what I see and etc. And I want to do something gritty, as it were. Mm. So... With women, I w- would you forgive a woman who did all your wrinkles and made you look as you are? Well, want? you
0: haven't painted me since I was about four, so... No, darling, I sh- so Maybe really it's because I would get offended. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'd like no. you to paint me again.
0: <laughs> You've obviously painted some really high-profile people, including Elton John, the portrait of which is in the National Portrait Gallery. Can you tell me a little bit about painting Elton?
1: I got that commission because I had an exhibition and Elton John's manager bought three of my paintings. And through that... I was commissioned to paint Elton. It was Christmas. I went to Rocket Records at that time. It was in Mayfair. And there were masses of people who all looked like Elton and they're all wearing leather with leather hats walking through the offices. My, I did not have many sittings with him, just one. It, it was Christmas. Everybody was busy. But I know one thing. When I met him recently, I met him a year ago in Florence. And he looked actually better than when I painted him he really? looked more relaxed happier I was with a, a friend of mine we were in a restaurant and the restaurant was very quiet she said I'm going to take you to the hot spot in Florence I thought for hot spot there's nobody there I didn't know that they'd empty the restaurant for mm. Elton John afterwards when it was time to go he was in the foyer and luckily he remembered me we had some photos done but he looked marvelous just marvelous and I thought he looks so much happier and more relaxed. And it actually was about 30 years since I first...
0: I think that's edited. what a very lucrative John Lewis advert does to you. Ah. <laughs> um, and then can you tell me about your final career turning point, which we're going to discuss, which is your book?
1: After Princess Diana died, I had a commission to paint her. And there were newspaper articles With a picture of Prince Charles, which were lying on my studio floor. And every time I washed my paintbrush, I'd sort of look down at it. And then I'd look up to look at Diana. And then I thought, oh my God, they've got the same facial proportions. So I got half Charles's face and half Diana's face and saw they were mathematically suited. A week later, there was a newspaper article and it said, who is this? And I could see it was Camilla Parker Bowles, but she was wearing old-fashioned clothes. And who is the baby? And it said, turn around and you will see on the bottom of the newspaper who it is. And when it said that it was Prince Charles's nanny, everything dropped into place. I could then see his attraction for Camilla. He had had a wonderful relationship with his nanny, Mabel Anderson. The first three birthdays, his mother was away and she took that place. And when Jonathan Dimbleby wrote his book with him, with Charles, the adjectives he used to describe Mabel Anderson were exactly the same that he used to r- describe Camilla. She was his rock. And the attraction was a tr- an attraction from his earliest life. And I discovered, through being a portrait painter and seeing so many wives who always helped me with their husbands' portraits, and I always looked at photographs so I could see their genetic inheritance. I learned that there are different categories and different ways of being attracted to people. So I actually worked on a book, which took over 10 years, on why people love who they love. Mm. And I discovered that there are three main categories. One was the proportions, which was like Princess Diana's. And those people, when they broke up, it was always bitter So I actually discovered the behavior within that category. I got the faces, I show the proportions in the book, and then I discovered the behavior within that group. Because if you love somebody aesthetically, very often you project onto them the things you want them to have. Uh, And if you're disappointed, which you often are when somebody's very beautiful and you're hoping for the for this wonderful love mm. and it disappoints you you break up with bitterness mm. the second category which i noticed from a lot of husbands and wives was the way in which they looked like each other and i call that one echoism and the last category is when somebody like prince charles resembles their first love so the first his first love was his nanny very often you have people whose, whose first love was is their mother. But if the mother's been ill, sometimes the sister takes over. I remember getting in touch with Richard Burton's sister. I pointed out the similarity between Richard Burton's sister who brought Richard Burton up And Elizabeth Taylor, and she said no, no. And then after I wrote the book, she wrote me a beautiful letter to say absolutely spot on.
0: Really? Yeah. How interesting.
1: That was nice. But what was lovely is is the research that you had to do. I had to do it from twenty two countries around the world and use fifty five faces to show the examples and why and how, and it it was very exciting. And it still has not been pushed to its maximum because. I have the algorithm which, of the computer which I uh, developed then and I would love people to be able to use it for themselves. Mm.
0: It's an amazing um, theory and if you read the book, you learn so much about attraction and about how we fall in love with someone. It's also made me very hesitant to bring any boyfriends back because well, m- mum can take one look.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think that the thing is, is when you paint a lot of faces... You learn what things mean on the face. So, everything is literally just under your nose. So, you, it's not just a face. We've developed our faces according to our characters and our nature. And by a certain age, you can tell if somebody's forceful, if they're ambitious, if they're weak, if they've got a temper, if they're generous, lots and lots of things mm. which are useful.
0: Mm, yeah, you can learn so much about someone just through their face. Well, it, it is a book. Mm. It is a book. And that's why
1: if you're reading Charles Dickens, he describes somebody. And through that description, you know that the person's character. But I think we've forgotten how to do it for ourselves because if we were aware, mm. then we wouldn't make certain choices. And I think that because we're not using that facility, which everybody has... But maybe it hasn't developed enough. We don't know how to protect ourselves. I mean, would you want to work for a boss who is very controlling? Mm. That will be on the face. Mm. That will be on the pointed chin. Would you want to be with somebody who is extremely ambitious? That's on another part of the face. So everything. And also there are certain people who are quick-tempered and petty. You can see if somebody's petty from their mouth.
0: I mean, it's all there. Mum can always tell if someone's a murderer by how pointed their ears are well (laughs) it was very interesting
1: that um that that um what was his name fritzel fritzel yes from germany Mm. that had his daughter in the cellar for so long he had very pointed ears Mm. eichmann's ears were very pointed and the other day there was somebody and he was on the television he was saying no i didn't do it and i said he did it
0: (laughs) (laughs) portrait painter turned detective who was the best person who ever sat for you and why
1: oh i've had some marvelous sitters all of them have been marvelous and I formed relationships with all of them. One of them, which was very curious, was I had um, I was painting the chairman of British American Tobacco, and he had the head of Max Factor, who was talking to him. And I often would sit in on these kind of things, so you could actually draw people when they were relaxed, and rather than when they were posing. Anyway, I was waiting and waiting while this went on, and then afterwards I thought, great, now I can do some sort of still heads. And he got behind his desk, and he picked up the phone, and he was moving a lot. And I was so frustrated. I was unaware of what I was doing. I picked up his hand, and I smacked it. <laughs> and I was shocked that I'd done it. But he was also shocked, and his face dropped. Everybody was terrified of him. He had a booming voice, and they were all scurrying around the office. And he looked at me in amazement, and I, <laughs> I was amazed. From that moment, he was a pussycat. Really? And not only that... It was a lifelong friendship. I would go down and I'd go to the stay in the country with him. He he had bought the former Rothschild estate, and I would stay in the country with him and his wife and his daughters, have a wonderful time. And I often, after I'd finished painting people, I used to go and stay in their homes. And he was one of them. Amazing. Very nice. That's yeah. So funny. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Mum always asks me before I go and interview anyone, she says to me, ask them what do they want out of life because that will always be the most insightful question and answer. So I think it's my time, Susie, to ask you, what do you want out of life?
1: I'm Fortunate. I've got you, darling.
0: <laughs> that's the correct answer. Yeah, that's Is there right. anything else you'd like? Who would be your dream person to paint?
1: I'd like to answer the previous question. Okay. <laughs> Can I answer. Yeah, go
0: I, out of life...
1: I think I'm very fortunate because I've got love in my life. And I think that if you've got love at a certain age, if you'd have asked me, what do you want out of life? I would have just said, oh, I want to be famous. But when you are older, you realize that the the things that really matter are your family. I've got marvelous brothers, Howard and James, a wonderful mother. I've got you and I've got Oliver. So I feel very fortunate. Anything more would be with my career. And I hope I've got the energy and the health to work for a very, very long time. I haven't finished. I haven't even started. Mm. So that's what I want out of life.
0: Well, thank you, Susie. Um, You're a very inspirational woman. I'm very glad you could come on this podcast.
1: Thank you, Sreeta. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Thanks for listening to She started It with Angelica Malin. If you've enjoyed this episode, then don't forget to subscribe, rate and review. And you can follow me on Twitter at Jelly Malin.